This is a CBC Podcast. Want a weekly roundup of the best CBC Radio programming? Subscribe to the CBC Radio 1 newsletter. Get a digest of the week's top stories. Read in-depth articles. Listen to interviews and documentaries. And get the lowdown on upcoming stories from CBC Radio 1 that you need to hear. To subscribe, go to cbc.ca slash radio and look for the subscribe button. The CBC Radio 1 newsletter. Be informed. Danse, Anine, Boujou, hello and welcome. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. It's a phrase you've probably heard before. First Nations, Inuit and Métis. But how much do you really know about the Métis? You may have learned about Louis Riel, who led the Métis resistance. But beyond that, not much else is taught in schools. Historically, the Métis didn't fit in society, and at times were even rejected by their First Nation families. It is a history of rebellion, of resistance, and of forced assimilation. Textbooks and children's books perpetuate the notion of this mixed or hybrid identity. Land is key to Métis just as much as it is to other Indigenous people, but this story of Scrip and how Western Canada was settled is very much untold. And I quickly learned that there's this stereotype that Métis people go to church and First Nations people go to ceremonies. It's much more complex than that. So the the provincial governments were always up in arms on whose responsibility the Métis was. Today on Unreserved, the untold history of the Métis. Brenda McDougall is a leading expert in Métis history. She is the first chair in Métis research at the University of Ottawa. As a scholar and a Métis woman herself, Brenda has thought deeply about what it means to be Métis She has also spent years digging through the archives, from personal diaries and letters to documents and census information. She is working to develop a fuller understanding of Métis identity, an identity that she says is often misunderstood. Brenda, welcome. Hi, thank you. How often do you find yourself in a position of explaining who the Métis are? Well, I mean, because I research and teach on the topic, I actually spend a great deal of time explaining and trying to address counter-narratives that come up. What kind of counter-narratives? Well, there's a, um, in part because the word Métis is, you know, French linguistic origin, and it simply means mixed. It's not all that much different from the word half-breed in English. There's a perception, particularly amongst um, Francophones, that it is a word that simply means mixed and can be applied to anything or anybody of mixed origins. And that's not really the way that the term evolved within a cultural and socio-political context historically. And who are the Métis in your mind? Well, the Métis are a distinct Indigenous people who emerge out of the context of the fur trade in the late 1700s into the early 1800s within a very, I feel, um, a very defined geography between roughly the Great Lakes to the Rocky Mountains, um, down into some of the northern United States, particularly North Dakota and Montana, and what we conceive of now as the central 
prairie provinces with parts of Ontario and just parts of British Columbia and parts of the Northwest Territories. Mm. Why do you think there's such a limited understanding of who the Métis are? I think it's, I think in part it's the word and I think it's also in part people's perception of culture being equated with race and that race is something that is pure and as as a consequence the paternal and maternal ancestors of the Métis Nation, who are European in origin or First Nations in origin, are the ones that are authentic and that the Métis are somehow not authentic as a people in and of themselves. Mm. Is this confusion or misunderstanding of who counts as Métis something new, or has it historically been sort of a thread? I, I don't think it's historical, and I certainly don't think it's historical when we look at Canada's interactions, the state's interactions with Métis people, or even the Hudson's Bay Company's interactions with the Métis. They certainly knew that they were dealing with a group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of the Hudson's Bay Company, they knew they were dealing with, in part, their own descendants, their, the children of the people that worked for them. But, you know, the state itself goes to war against the Métis twice, once in 1869-70 and another in 1885. I don't think that you can be confused about a people when you're willing to fight them. An excellent point. So where does this uh, misunderstanding or lack of knowledge come from when we're talking about the average Canadian? Why doesn't the average Canadian know who the Métis are? Well, I I think textbooks and children's books perpetuate um, the notion of this mixed or hybrid identity, that it's from coast to coast. And I think it's in part because it serves a useful tool of being Canadian in the sense that one of the one of the central tenets of Canada's interactions with Indigenous people was to, in fact, reduce the number of Indigenous people over time. So if you look at the Indian Act, the whole process of it was to disenfranchise people from their Indianness, their mm. First Nationsness. And with the Métis, you could simply act like they didn't exist at all. And Canada's decision after 1885, after the Battle of Batoche, was to simply act as though the Métis did not exist any longer, Mm -hmm. that somehow they didn't have a presence. And so while First Nations and Inuit people have had historically a a relationship with the federal government, the Métis have not. We've been a provincial responsibility as though we were uh, normal citizens. Now, you've been researching Métis identity and history for many years as part of your work, but it's also personal for you. What have you learned about your own family history through your research? My father didn't hide it, but didn't necessarily talk about things in an open kind of fashion, and we didn't grow up in community. My father would have. Uh, My father was born in Winnipeg. He grew up in the Selkirk area, surrounded by a very large extended family. And only in the last few years has my family become part of my research output in the sense that I've been looking at the geographies where my family would have been located historically. And as a consequence, I'm seeing their names turn up in historic records. Wow. It's given me a broader sense of where Métis people were and when. So, Mm -hmm. for instance, um, there's a prevailing perception that Red River is kind of the only place Métis people come from. And what I've really come to understand as a part of this is that I think we can see multiple points of what's what's known in the scholarship as ethnogenesis, the birth of a new culture, mm. and that that happens in the Northern Plains, in the Edmonton region, it happens in the Red River region, um, it happens in other places, and it's all kind of happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. 
We're witnessing a rise in the number of people self-identifying as Métis in eastern Canada, but some are saying they are not, in fact, Métis. Where do you stand on the issue? I think a few things are happening. I'm going to take a little step back, I think, and say that in the 1980s when, you know, the three Indigenous peoples of Canada were um, enshrined in the Constitution as Indians, Métis, and Inuit, the term Indian has a legal definition. Uh, Inuit is understood to be people from the Arctic, and then people conceived, not not us, but other people conceived of Métis as being sort of an open box. Mm. And so there are legitimately some people who I think could be classified as what we used to say as non-status Indians, people who were culturally um, and socially First Nations people who were not recognized federally as having Indian status. Mm-hmm. And those people have been left out of the structure of the Constitution, and they've been left out of Section 35. And so many of them have called themselves Métis over time. Then I think that we have uh, a particular rise of people who understand the word Métis in that French linguistic context. And they've been doing family genealogies, and they see a First Nations ancestor, and so they simply ascribe to themselves that they must then be Métis. They're not necessarily claiming a a right as Indigenous people. Some do, but some are simply acknowledging an ancestral reality. And then there are opportunists, um, people who see Métis as being attached to a particular body of rights, and that those rights are things that they want access to. So if you could tell all Canadians uh, something about the Métis, what would you want them to know? Well, I would I would say that the product of being mixed um, really has nothing to do with Métis identity. Métis people are Métis because that's who they're, they're linked to generations of people with that shared background. We are a people who came out of the fur trade, absolutely a post-contact Indigenous people. We shared economy, we shared political aspirations as witnessed in a number of seminal moments in our history. And we share a a culture and a social outlook that is based on our extended kinship systems. A lot of us grew up outside of community now because we are a people without a land base. By and large, only um, a small group of people in Alberta have a land base. And so as a consequence, we managed to keep our connections to each other by keeping the knowledge of our families very much alive and very much a part of who we are. Mm. Brenda, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Brenda McDougall is Métis, and she is the chair in Métis Research at the University of Ottawa. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM 169, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today on the show, we're digging into the complicated and often untold history of the Métis people of this country and meeting Métis researchers who are getting these stories out. Well, what I do is I go out into Saskatchewan and I record uh, Michif elders talk about their time on the road allowances. And really, that's the only time that their history has been documented. And so there's a whole like a generation of us, I would say, that are going back and recovering these stories and trying to write the history of our people because it just doesn't appear in the narrative of Canada, especially post-war uh, history of Métis people. It's, it's almost like it doesn't exist in the books. Jesse Thistle on another dark chapter in Canadian history. In just a few minutes, he'll explain what road allowances are and the long-lasting impact they've had on Métis families. To understand where the Métis are, we need to look back at where they've been. 
As the colonies began to settle the West, the federal government gave a Métis person a choice. Take a sum of money or take the equivalent number in acres of land. But as we're about to find out, the system had a bunch of negative consequences, intentional or not. Jason Madden is an Indigenous rights lawyer. He's also Métis and a descendant of the half-breeds of Rainy River in Ontario. He's here to tell us why Scrip is one of Canada's best-kept secrets. Hello, Jason. Hi, nice to be here. So for people who've never heard this term before, what is Scrip? So... You have to go back to the history of Canada and the expansion westward. And Canada, when it purchased Rupert's land, and and I think that this is really purchased without dealing with the people, the indigenous peoples that were already in that territory. Uh, For First Nations, they negotiated treaties in order to deal with the claims. And for the Métis, what was established was a scrip system. And it's spelled S-C-R-I-P. And it's a coupon or an entitlement to land. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally... It's about the same way of treaties with First Nations was about dispossession or dealing with the quote-unquote Indian title. Mm-hmm. For the Métis, it was dealing with them as individuals as opposed to collectively. And these coupons uh, were entitlements to land or money in an attempt to extinguish whatever Indian title the Métis had at mm-hmm. that time. Do you have any idea of how many of these scripts would have been handed out? Thousands upon thousands. It's it's essentially the largest land squindle in North America because what it all, is all about is the intention of Scrip was to actually provide equitable settlement of Métis claims. But what was devised was a system that never got lands in the hands mm. of Métis. It was mm. all about the colonial policy of dispossession of indigenous peoples from their lands. And in a few short generations, you see Métis from being you know brokers and diplomats of Western Canada to being known as the road allowance people. Mm-hmm. And and Scrip is the fundamental tool of how Canada accomplishes that. For First Nations, it's, well, let's create the reserve system and attempt to control uh, First Nations from cradle to grave through assimilation policies. Um, from For the Métis, it was, well, let's just literally steal the lands out from under you through a paper trail and using these coupons. Mm. And the system itself was never intended to achieve the fundamental purpose of providing some level of equitable settlement of Métis claims. Mm-hmm, In fact, mm-hmm. it did the exact opposite. So Jason, just explain to me how, how that would work. Take me back to the day, pretend we're traveling in time, and, and tell me how, how that would work. So beginning in the late 1800s, after the second Métis resistance in Batoche, they finally begin implementing the script system. Mm-hmm. And what happens is as the script treaty commissioners are traveling in tents to negotiate treaties and to deal with uh, First Nation claims, they deal with Métis claims at the same point in time. So just think of it, a tent set up, someone comes in and says, do you want treaty or do you want a scrip if you're you're Métis? um, If you are Métis, you can possibly get uh, land or money scrip. But who's traveling with the commissioners are speculators. So they're just standing outside the tent. So these people are coming in, they're getting their coupon, and the script speculators are standing outside the tent and saying, well, I'll give you 50 cents for that. Here, I'll take your script coupons, right? And of course, the Métis look at these these pieces of coupons and they kind of go, well, this is our land. This is our territory. There's no settlers there at the time of how do they conceptually say of, well, why do I have to mark out this spot when this has been our homeland forever? So that's how it 
gets into the hands of speculators. Mm. Then the speculators take that coupon and they don't ask that Métis person to go down to the Dominion Lands Act uh, offices, out, you know, which may be hundreds of kilometers away from them. They go and get someone to impersonate them at the lands office. So you have everything from you know, Métis signing with an X on the, on the day of uh, them receiving the script and then they show up in the land commissioner's office and they're they're literate and they can write. And so what we've seen in the research is you can trace that and you can see what is called abuses and fraud through impersonation of Métis people. The system itself was designed, though, they couldn't even situate the land where they were living. They would they would literally have to, oh, yes, you get this entitlement, but you have to relocate to southern Saskatchewan where we've surveyed lands. The absurdity of the system is... is so they in, weren't even getting the lands that they were already living on. No. That they, they had to go somewhere else. Where the lands had been surveyed by the Dominion Lands Office. But first they had to go to point A to register yes. and then go find the land. Where they could locate it. And then go back and register. Yes. That's so frustrating. I think it was a system that was designed uh, for to the speculator, yeah, mm-hmm. not not for the Métis. And it's a little bit, you know, kind of uh, the Supreme Court of Canada has always re- already referred to this as a sorry chapter in our nation's history. Mm. But I think it's fundamental to understanding the treaties for First Nations, and that is a part of the relationship. For Métis, it's scrip. This is land is key to Métis just as much as it is to other Indigenous people. But this story of scrip and how Western Canada was settled is very much untold. And many people today don't understand that underneath these titles that people have today lie uh, the dispossession of the Métis um, through the script system. Mm. So in short order, you mentioned road allowance. What effect did this have on the Métis nation? So you have a few events that come together. One, the collapse of the buffalo in the late 1800s, as well as the script system being put into place. And what you have is settler towns or farming communities being established and those lucrative locations, Métis being pushed out of those locations. Métis again and again petitioned for their lands in the same way that First Nations had. But what happens is through the script system and through settlement, they're pushed off from their traditional lands. And what you see is Métis literally living in the road allowances and, you know, living in shanties and a population that is unlike... First Nations who are put onto reserves um, and largely in, in Western Canada starved and controlled in that way, Métis are just left by the wayside. And these communities, uh, whether they're places like uh, Saratoga Park in Medicine Hat or up in Lac La Biche, are these road allowance communities that they're pushed to the fringes of the settler communities. And they're also kept from their First Nation relations who are um, under the control of the Indian Act. And so this is a part of that story of, uh, of people being dispossessed in less than a generation and being ignored by Canada. Mm. And I think it's not until you see in the ni- early 1900s that Métis begin to organize, for example, in Alberta. And what leads to um, the creation of the Métis settlements in Alberta is Métis organizing because this federal land system fails them entirely and they're left uh, destitute and, and living in road allowances or trying to eke out an existence in some of these communities. Reconciliation is about telling truths about our history. This is the history that the Métis face. So when you look at the issues and the challenges faced today, the same way of the devastation that the Indian Act and the reserve system has had on First Nations, the script system, uh, which is 
a colonization tool of dispossession, had the same effect on Métis. What was the bigger effect on, on Métis people and their culture and how they governed, how they lived? What was, what was the result of this script policy? So I think there's two things in script. One, at least with First Nations, they dealt with First Nations as collectives. Mm-hmm. Script is based on this system of we deal with you as an individual. Here's your little coupon. And what that really is, is it denies the idea that the Métis are a people mm-hmm. and a collective of communities in and of themselves. And so it's this disrespect or denial of the existence of Métis communities. That idea that, oh, well, you're not a people with your own unique culture, language, uh, customs, you know, governance. You're just nothing more than maybe the adjunct relatives of First Nations or Mm. mixed ancestry people. And what it created is this kind of this era of denial of we will just see you as individuals. And the solution is, well, hopefully you'll go away or you'll be absorbed into the body politic. And that doesn't happen. Métis and these communities uh, preserve their language, preserve their uh, identity. You know, for the Métis, there will be no reconciliation with the Métis nation without dealing with the legacy of Scrip. Mm-hmm. It is it is a part of their origin story with Canada. If you want to really talk about reconciliation with us, we have to talk about the sorry legacy of Scrip mm-hmm. and the fact that it's not that Métis are less indigenous and that's why we don't have lands. It's because you devised a system that dispossessed us from those lands in Western Canada. So where do you go from there? Of course, as you as you mentioned, the, the Métis all across Canada uh, have fought long and hard for the, the indigenous rights that they have. But uh, for Métis people, will they be able to recoup some of that, that script land? Or what does the future look like? So I think, I think that what you're seeing finally is some progress on framework agreements being signed with the Métis Nation of Alberta, Manitoba Métis Federation, um, and other uh, Métis governments to begin those negotiations. Negotiations, And what we're hoping is that through those negotiations, we can begin to talk about reconciliation um, and how do you address those uh, those realms of the past. You know, the, the story of, of, of residential schools, right, you can move the needle if you actually educate Canadians about what history was. And I think that for the Métis, that story of script needs to become taught in schools. But we also need to devise ways or figure out, well, how do we build a better way forward? Land clearly needs to be a part of that equation for Mm -hmm, the Métis. mm -hmm. And I I think that it's going to be a challenging conversation, but it's not going anywhere. And, uh, you know, Canada is still a work in progress. And I think uh, Métis see script as a means, a story that needs to be told. It can't be Canada's best kept secret anymore. Many Canadians are finally understanding their impacts of residential schools and those assimilationist policies on First Nations, they need to also understand those stories that the same strategies were applied to Métis, but they use different tools and different mechanisms. And Scrip is a key part of that. Jason, thank you so much. Fascinating. Fascinating. Thanks so much. Jason Madden is a lawyer and a descendant of the half-breeds of Rainy River. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM 169, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Just a few minutes ago, we heard about the script process and how it separated Métis people from their land. If you missed that discussion, you can find it on our website at cbc.ca slash unreserved.
My next guest says we still see many effects of script today. Because once the Métis were displaced, where did they go? Many were forced to squat on Crown land. That was called road allowance. Jesse Thistle is here to talk more about road allowances. He is working on his PhD at York University about road allowances in Park Valley, Saskatchewan. Hello, Jesse. Hello, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm excellent. Now, this is the first time a lot of our listeners will have heard of the term scrip or road allowance. Can you explain what road allowances are? Okay, so after the Manitoba Act of 1870, when the government of Canada negotiated with Riel after the Red River resistance in 1869, part of that was that the Métis would get portions of land for their children. So that was put into the Manitoba Act. And as well, that would extinguish Métis lands on an individual basis through a process called scrip. Mm. The second half of that was uh, signing treaties with First Nations people, which the government engaged with, the paper treaties. And the third part would be the introduction of the Dominion Land Survey in 1872. And what this did is it divided up the prairie into square lot settlements called homesteads. Well, in between the homestead lots, plots, and uh, block sites that eventually came to be, the government uh, made spaces for roads and for infrastructure like CPR rail and stuff like that. So I believe there were 66 feet in width, uh, these uh, road allowances. And so the Métis came to stay on these road allowances after they were dispossessed of their land through scrip, Mm. uh, which was a process that was duplicitous, labyrinth-like, and eventually ended with the Métis land claims that were enshrined through the Royal Proclamation uh, being extinguished on an individual basis. And with nowhere else to live, basically, the Métis came to live on the sides of the roads, the sides of the railways, and on these road allowances. They were squatting there, quote-unquote, illegally, Mm. even though I I think it could be argued that it wasn't illegal, personally, but I think it was a form of resistance that they were affecting to keep their kin groups together so that they can live in their communities uh, as they had been before the invasion of Canadian settlement and the Dominion Land Survey. So, Jesse, for people trying to process and picture what these families and these communities living on the side of the road look like. Can you give us sort of a general description of what one of those communities might look like? The road limits communities appeared like a bunch of smaller shacks that are were made out of poplar, and they look like log cabins, basically. Mm. But there's a very distinctive uh, Métis type of architecture uh, that was used. I have some pictures of my gra- my grandfather's place, and the inside is like chinked with white clay, and they look like almost almost like pioneer huts. Mm-hmm. And th- those are winter habitations. They're they're also roofed with tar paper, a lot of the way, uh, to keep the the moisture out. They appeared in clusters, so people had their little acre or two of land, and then next to that would be uh, relatives of theirs and extended family and grandparents paid a, played a big role, so they were always close by. And during the summer, uh, Métis were highly mobile. They were hunting and fishing and berry picking, and so a lot of the times they would leave children behind, older children, and they would tend to the garden. 
uh, while the mother or father was out berry picking or hunting or whatnot. So very community-oriented type of spaces. That's why I say that they were sites of resilience mm-hmm. and uh, cultural resistance as well. Uh, as we see um, these communities established, as we see how uh, it's changing the way they went from wandering the lands and hunting and gathering that way to being forced to stay on these little strips of land, how did it, that affect contemporary Métis people and their culture? Well, I've argued that that, that it was a kind of homelessness, a bureaucratic mm-hmm. homelessness, where we were made to live on the sides of the roads as squatters, basically, first in tents and then in later structures. Our health suffered in the early half of the 20th century. Education was a massive problem because Métis people didn't own land and you had to to have access to education. You had to own a piece of property and pay taxes on that. Mm -hmm. So the, the provincial governments were always up in arms on whose responsibility the Métis was, right? They said, okay, they're a federal responsibility because they're Indigenous. Then the feds would say, no, they're actually a provincial responsibility because they've extinguished their Aboriginal right to land. And then because they didn't pay taxes, they were falling in between the cracks of health care and education. And so this led to a crisis in the 1930s where provincial governments were looking at the Métis people and saying, well, look, we need to deal with this problem. We need to figure out a way to, you know, basically offset the relief that they they were paying. So welfare in the 1930s, uh, Métis were seen as a giant drain on that. So the governments uh, started coming up with all kinds of like acts to get the Métis off of their lands mm-hmm. and uh, move them into colonies. They were sold as communal properties where Métis could uh, live in common and have access to bank credit and wage labor and live in their kin groups. But when they shipped them up to places like Green Lake, when the Métis got there, there virtually was nothing there. And so they had to survive on their own wits. Really, they were just trying to clear the land for communal pastures and for other farmers to take the lands that they were already settled on. So when did uh, people stop living on road allowances? See, this is where the interesting thing happens with the research. I know that my uncle Leo lived on the road allowance where our family lived until 2002. So people usually when they think about road allowances, they think of way in the past, right? But there were still some people up around Rickson. This is another road allowance from where my family's from, up around Aaron Ferry and Dumbolt and those area where people were still squatting. And so... I don't think anybody lives on them now, but I could be mistaken. But over time, there was a gradual move away so that people could go to work in the city or own property or get a farm or whatever. So, Why aren't we teaching this history to, you know, in educational facilities? Well, I think it has to do with the way that we were dispossessed and our land was extinguished. There was no Department of Indigenous Affairs set up mm-hmm. to create documents to track history. And so with the Métis, you have to get into the Department of uh, Social Welfare and Rehabilitation and see the way that they're looking at their health records. You have to look at court records to see if Métis are being persecuted for petty crime or the way that they're appearing in newspaper. So a lot of kind of alternate sources that you would use as a historian, but as a historian of Indigenous people, First Nations people, you have the wealth of Indigenous affairs. And so a lot of history can be written from that. Nothing like that existed for Métis people. 
especially the road lounge people who are virtually uh, forgotten after a while. And so what would you like uh, people to know about the road allowance history in this in this country? I'd like people to know that it was and remains a vibrant history. I, I think road allowances were a site of resistance hmm. against the state. It was an effort to keep our kin groups together, and uh, we should be very proud of our ancestors for enduring what they did and passing on a legacy of rich stories, connection to land, and uh, an identity. It, it's just there if we if we go and search for it. We just have to look. Jesse, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. That's Jesse Thistle, who's working on his PhD on road allowances for York University and is a Trudeau-Vanier scholar. As you've been hearing on the show today, we're still seeing the effects of scrip and the displacement of the Métis today. That displacement led to a loss of identity. But as Métis people continue to assert themselves as a distinct people with a distinct culture, questions arise about what that means. CBC Indigenous is working on a project called Exploring Identity that looks at issues of cultural identity in First Nation, Métis, and Inuit communities. One of the more contentious issues is the development of new self-described Métis organizations across Canada, especially in Atlantic Canada, where self-described Eastern Métis organizations are claiming tax exemptions. This is Mary Lou Parker, the self-described Grand Chief of the Eastern Woodland Métis Nation of Nova Scotia, explaining her position. People have to understand the true meaning of a Métis which is a person of mixed identity. Not just two, could be three or four, but it's a person of mixed identity. I know what I'm doing in my heart. I know what I'm doing is right for my people, and I'm going to continue to do it. Laugh your heart out. I'm here. I'm staying. That was the self-described Grand Chief of the Eastern Woodland Métis Nation of Nova Scotia, Mary Lou Parker, explaining in pretty broad terms who she thinks qualifies as Métis. On the other side of that issue is Will Goodon of the Manitoba Métis Federation, who says simply being of mixed ancestry alone doesn't cut it. You can read more from both sides as part of the Exploring Identity Project. That's at cbc.ca slash indigenous. We'll also put a link on our page at cbc.ca slash unreserved. When you think of Indigenous ceremony, what comes to mind? Smudging with sweetgrass and sage? A sweat lodge? Or maybe the sun dance? And when you think of these ceremonies, who are the people you imagine? Often, First Nations people are associated with ceremony and spirituality. Métis people are thought to be, well mostly Catholic. So why don't more Métis people go to traditional ceremonies? Dr. Chantal Fiola is a Red River Métis with Cree, Anishinaabe, and French heritage. She is an assistant professor of urban and inner-city studies at the University of Winnipeg. She's also the author of Rekindling the Sacred Fire, Métis Ancestry and Anishinaabe Spirituality, a book that explores what Métis spirituality is and the impact of colonization. Welcome, Dr. Fiola. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So growing up, what did spirituality look like at your house? Well, both of my parents uh, were raised Roman Catholic. Um, That's a pretty common experience among Métis folks, at least in Manitoba. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, so I was very heavily involved in the church. Um, First communion, reconciliation, confirmation. I sang in the choir. I was an altar girl, like everything. Um, but I walked away from that, I'd say, between the ages of like 13 and 15. It was around that time when I was realizing that I'm two-spirit and I didn't feel welcomed in the church. Mm. And then began a process of searching and I eventually would find ceremonies mm. And I found my way home, I feel like. Yeah. And when you started to look around for these ceremonies and finding them, uh, what role did Métis people play in them? Well, interestingly, I had to leave home. Um, I moved to Toronto for higher education, and that's where I started um, taking like Native Studies courses. Mm-hmm. I had a prof who was Métis. She's actually the one that brought me to my first ceremonies. Oh. Yeah. So um, my first sweat, which happened to be a two-spirit sweat, uh, women's drum circle. And really from that moment, I was hooked and I knew that ceremonies held the answers to the questions that I had. But the question of, like, where are the other Métis people started arising. And so that kind of led me down uh a personal but also like an academic path because that became a key area of focus for my studies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so when you started looking around and asking the question, where are the other Métis, what kinds of answers were you hearing back? I quickly learned that there's this stereotype that Mm. like Métis people go to church and First Nations people go to ceremonies. It's much more complex than that, like on both sides, on Mm -hmm. all sides. It is a result of the legacy of colonization. In your historical research, what did you find that Métis spiritual practice looked like before colonization affected it? I've spent some time in the archives kind of pouring over the journals that the first priests, uh, they were Catholic, the first ones that got to Manitoba in like 1818, And there are instances in their writing where they say things like, these Métis people call themselves Catholic, and it's true they come to Mass, Mm -hmm. but the following weekend, they'll practice La Grande Médecine, which is how they referred to the Medewin Lodge. So there's proof in these historic archival documents that Métis people... Like, it was normal for us to go to church and to participate in ceremonies, Mm -hmm. historically. Mm -hmm. Now... I'm going to go ahead and say most Métis people have forgotten that, again, because of the legacy of colonization and this kind of forced forgetting, especially after we get kicked out of Manitoba and then the fallout after 1885. It's no wonder we've forgotten our own stories. Mm-hmm. Let's unpack that a little when you say um, forced, mm-hmm. um, when you say kicked out. When, when did this change start to happen and what happened? There's so much to talk yeah, about here. So much. Um, my, my research mostly is based in Manitoba, so things may differ. There may be parallels in other areas. But over time, there was this kind of increasing pressure from the church and from government to disconnect not just Métis people from traditional Indigenous ceremonies, but First Nations as well, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, through systems like the residential schools, the 60s scoop, the, the government banning of Indigenous ceremonies in Canada for almost 100 years. When it comes to the Métis in particular, uh, so I mentioned we got kicked out. We mm-hmm. helped confederate the province of Manitoba in 1870, and almost immediately thereafter, 
our leader, Louis Riel, gets exiled. Um, The military gets sent in to supposedly help ensure a peaceful transition from the provisional to the provincial government, but instead they totally wreaked havoc. There was also that's also the time when the script system gets implemented and is super corrupt. And the final result of which is something like only 15 to 20 percent of Métis who were supposed to receive that 1.4 million acres of land promised in the Manitoba Act actually retain land. So many of us scatter at that point. Mm-hmm. And then that whole situation very similarly gets replicated in what would become Saskatchewan 15 years later. And so the fallout from that, sometimes it's referred to as the forgotten years, um, really kind of negatively impacted all aspects of Métis life and also, um, I argue, helped to further disconnect Métis people from traditional Indigenous ceremonies. Mm -hmm. Because there was also a a period in these forgotten years where Métis people denied their own heritage. So that must have also had a huge effect on how they practice spirituality. Absolutely. And the kind of persecution and oppression that Métis folks are experiencing during these forgotten years is so great that it wasn't uncommon for, you know, some of us to deny our indigeneity, Mm -hmm. especially those of us with lighter skin. If we could say, I'm French Canadian, period, and hopefully our children would experience a lesser form of discrimination, then that's the route we went. So, like I said, it's not surprising that so many of us have forgotten our own family stories, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. including relationships with ceremony. Mm. So are we seeing a return to Le Grand Médecine, as you said, this, this combination of church and ceremony? We're getting back to that today. More and more Métis people are somewhere on that continuum where, you know, maybe they were raised Roman Catholic and now they go to ceremonies exclusively or they do both. I've been finding folks that do both. Mm -hmm. Some Métis people say things like, I don't know if I'm indigenous enough to go to sweat Mm -hmm. or ceremonies. Again, it's because of that stereotype. Um, So if... You know, if those kind of tapes are playing over and over in your mind, those are effects of colonization. None of us were supposed to continue going to ceremonies. When you find your way home like that, if you're being called in that way, it's just so good for your self-esteem and for understanding like what it means to be human and how to have good relationships. Mm. It's just so beautiful and powerful. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for coming in today, Chantel. Thank you. Dr. Chantel Fiola is the author of Rekindling the Sacred Fire, Métis Ancestry, and Anishinaabe Spirituality. That's it for this week's episode of Unreserved. We'll be back in this radio space next week for more community, culture, and conversation. If you want to learn more or share any of the stories you heard on the show today, you can find them on our website, cbc.ca slash unreserved. This episode was produced by Kyle Musica, Stephanie Cram, Zoe Tennant, and Anna Lazowski. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at unreserved at cbc.ca or find us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory and the homeland of the Métis Nation. Thank you for listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I go say.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.